Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for listening to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we analyze truly genius ideas. Today is episode number 22, and I have on Donald Crosby, who is one of the most insightful philosophers alive in the world today and who has articulated, who has developed a way of having a religion about nature. Yeah, so it's really cool stuff. I love Crosby's work. Okay, Donald Crosby is like my Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky or I don't know, other kind of popular sports figure that you idolize as, you know, a younger person, I, or older, Donald Crosby became one of the most important figures in my life about 10 years ago when I first read one of his books on nihilism, on meaninglessness and sources of meaninglessness in the modern world. And it just totally, totally blew my mind and taught me why I had been so plagued by meaninglessness my whole life. You know, really, really fascinating, really, really important stuff. So uh, I am so happy and so honored and so excited to have him on today. He has a very, very beautiful set of ideas, and the way that he talks about them is also really beautiful. And it's just, I'm so deeply honored. Today was the first time that I met him. Uh, and so I had, I had been waiting. I had been waiting for a decade. So I'm going to read a little bit about him before I bring him on. He and I actually talked for quite a long time. And so this is going to be a two-part episode. I will be airing this one and then, and, and then the second one at a later point in time, the second half of the conversation. We start out talking about nihilism and how he got started on this path and sort of some contemporary problems we have. And then we dive into his religious vision after talking about those things. And it's definitely worth sticking around for the religious vision that is really fascinating in terms of how he constructs a religiosity around around nature. So um, here is a little bit about uh, Donald Crosby, Don Crosby. Donald Crosby is a philosopher, now an emeritus professor at the University of Colorado, I believe, whose work provides a solid intellectual grounding for religious naturalism. In A Religion of Nature, he explains the view that nature is all that is real and that nature can be a focus of religious orientation. In this and other books and articles, he examines challenges and opportunities that come with this view and how values may be envisioned, the relation of humans to other creatures, and how aspects of nature may serve as symbols. Now, uh, a list of his books, it's long. He published a book on the interpretive theories of religion is what it was called in the 1980s, and also Specter of the Absurd, which was the one that I read in 1988, more recently, he has published books on the philosophy of William James and then a series of books about his religious vision, specifically A Religion of Nature, Living with Ambiguity, The Thou of Nature, uh, Faith in Reason, More Than Discourse, Symbolic Expressions of Naturalistic Faith, Faith in Freedom, Context Choices and Crises in Religious Commitments, all of these different books 
are, have all been very, very important uh, pools of insight for me. So I'm super, super honored to bring him on. Thank you so much for tuning in. I think this is, this is going to be really great. So here I will just go ahead and jump in. Here is the man of the hour, Donald Crosby. So actually, uh, your book, Spectre of the Absurd, was, I think, one of the more important books that I've ever read in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of, I spent my whole childhood um, terrified of meaninglessness and death and all of these existentialist themes. I obviously didn't know I was an existentialist mm-hmm. at the time, but uh yeah, Spectre of the Absurd was very important to me. It's this, for people listening, um, if people are listening, it's this book about uh, source the sources of nihilism, right? And it was such a revelation for me to learn that the things in our culture that are nihilistic are actually culturally contingent, right? They, they're, they're not, they weren't necessary. And you were the first person to sort of demonstrate to me uh, like how you know, how, how, how much I could actually change, right? I didn't have to be a nihilist. Um, and that was a really beautiful idea. So I'm curious, I'm curious about a lot about that book. Um, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, what sort of influenced you to write it? Like, what were you looking at? Or were you also sort of wrestling with nihilistic ideas? Like why, why that book at that particular point in time? Well, I think I lived in a nihilistic time of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear annihilation, and a lot of my students were deeply influenced by that. And we also had the Vietnamese War, and uh, we had students leaving the university to go and fight in Vietnam. And one of them actually went berserk on the plane on the way to Vietnam. And they had to bring him home and hospitalize him. And the professors realized that if a student didn't pass the courses at the university, he or she would be sent to Vietnam. Don, can I wait? Can I stop you for a quick second? Can we try? Can you move your mic um, up like to here? Is your mic movable on your headset? No, my mic is in my computer somewhere. Is it hard? Oh, to- okay. Okay, that's fine. No, I was just curious. It's good. It, your voice is a little bit muffled, but not too bad. So that's totally, don't worry about yeah, it. I get a little closer to my computer. Does that help? Uh, actually, no. Could you back up? <laughs> back up? Oh, yeah. I think that helps. Okay. Okay, cool. Go on. Um, Vietnam. All right. So um, a lot was going on at that time that was very threatening to the people of the earth, and especially to students in colleges in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, they took refuge, many of them, in a kind of uh, fideistic religion, where you just grit your teeth and try to believe it, whether it makes sense or not, because they thought that was their own recourse from nihilism. Yeah, I find nihilism as uh, despair, hopelessness, uh, the inability to affirm any kind of meaning in one's life or the world. And a lot of these students suffer from that. And uh, when I taught a course, Nihilism in the Modern World, 
a lot of the students were terrified by the course because in the first part of the book, I talk about all of the expressions of nihilism, whereas in the second part, I talk about criticisms of nihilism. And they had trouble getting beyond the first part to the second part. And of course, nihilism is not just a conceptual epistemological issue, it's an existential issue of the first order. Mm -hmm. So we had to deal not only with concepts, but with emotions, deep lying emotions. And for a lot of these students coming to the university was a transition from their religious faith, which had been taken for granted and never questioned, and all of a sudden being brought into a context where questions were being raised about all kinds of beliefs, assumptions, outlooks, ways of living, and so on. So at any time, I think the university is threatening for students. But during that time, it was especially threatening. And I could feel that bath of nihilistic outlook in my experience as a teacher, but also in my own experience at that time. So that's why I decided to write the book. And also I was going on a six months, six weeks uh, trip to India at that time. And each of us needed to have a project. So my project was what do the Indians think about the threat of nihilism? Hmm. Yeah, so that's, I kept thinking about that. So I taught the course, I gave some lectures. I thought a lot about these issues and I tried to, approach it as much as I could in a philosophical manner. Mm. Interesting. Um, and what did the Indians think of nihilism? I couldn't get much out of them about nihilism. <laughs> they were too much uh, desiring to impress us by their knowledge of the West. Mm. And for example, when we would try to press them about Indian art, they would present impressionistic Indian art instead of old traditional Indian art. Mm. So we had a problem trying to really uh, find out as much as we could about their own culture, their own history, their own traditions. Okay, oh, that's that's wonderful. And you um, you actually have a ba- you have a religious background, do you not? You went to a seminary. Were you planning on being ordained before you? I started? went to Princeton Seminary. Mm-hmm. And I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree there before mm-hmm. I went to Union Seminary in New York and Columbia University. And, and I so, went to a Presbyterian College. So actually, I'd never had a non Christian teacher until I got to Columbia University. Mm. And, and, and I suddenly discovered there's a huge world out there with a diversity of points of view only one of which is Christian. And only one of the Christian is my Protestant Christian. Right. So it expanded my horizons. And I studied world religions there, which had that effect. And I also studied in some depth the history of philosophy. Mm. And I realized how even the greatest philosophers had not been able to convince the ones that came after them. So Mm. I, I was thrown back upon my own resources my own need to think for myself. And that's how I tried to teach philosophy, by giving people the tools to think for themselves about these deep 
issues in epistemology and ethics, philosophy, religion, metaphysics, and so on. And I take it you're engaged in a similar kind of project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's wonderful. So your journey out of that career path and into philosophy, did you, how early did you say, I'm going to set out and create an alternative worldview? You know, has that always been what, what you wanted to do since you started to move away from Christianity? I think I only began to think about that when I was writing the nihilism book. Mm. Because I realized in writing the nihilism book that a lot of the assumptions I had made were ones that needed re-examination. And I, I came to realize that the task of philosophy basically is criticism, as John Dewey says, and the criticism of assumptions are lying beneath beliefs. No matter how long standing the beliefs, no matter how famous the proponents of those beliefs, each one had uh, set himself or herself to understanding what the fundamental assumptions are and then thinking critically about them in light of alternative assumptions. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the task of philosophy, rethinking our most basic assumptions. And you don't really rethink them until you encounter alternative mm -hmm. assumptions. And that's why the history of philosophy is so important. And I despaired of people in the 1940s who said, under the influence of logical positivism, the early Wittgenstein and so on, philosophy has come to an end as we formally understand it. Now we have a radical new beginning. Well, that was Descartes' mistake too. There's no such thing as a radical new beginning. There is only a transformation of the old in light of new possibilities. Mm. Uh, and so this transformation now, right, is it, what what sort of is what is happening? What when what are you what is your response? Your response is to construct this religious vision? Well, one of the assumptions that I talk about in the nihilism book is in the absence of God, the universe is still meaningful and important. There are values in the universe. And uh, that we have to complement the more or less objective approaches mm -hmm. of the natural sciences with the phenomenological or subject approaches of human consciousness. And uh, each complements the other and neither has hegemony over the other. The latest book that I've written, which is now out for publication, is called Primordial Time. It's infinite span, its forward direction, and its human significance. Mm. And uh, what I talk about there is the importance, among other things, of facing the future, not being mired in the past, because we can't live in the past, and living the whole of our life, as Heidegger suggests, with awareness of our impending death. So we have a finite span of life within which to live with what he calls anticipatory resoluteness in English. 
And that means I've resolved to draw upon my resources as a unique individual person to the fullest possible extent within the boundedness of my life between birth and death. So time, I argue, is one of two primordial existence mm. or forces or factors. The other one is matter energy. And these two, matter energy and primordial time, both of which are primordial, work together to produce through evolutionary processes the whole of this universe and all past universes and future universes. So given these two things and a kind of dynamic materialism, we can account for everything in the world. Mm. And when we say my mind influences my body, we have to realize it's my body influencing my body because it's all physical. And we have to get rid of the uh, condemnatory concept of matter as something verboten, something we should avoid, not be materialistic and so on, in favor of an emergent, expanding concept of matter. For matter is under an inordinate amount of things over the course of the universe and will continue to do new things as the universe progresses. So we have within matter and within time all the resources that are needed for an ongoing, evolving world, including us and our consciousness and the consciousness of all the other creatures uh, before us in evolutionary scales or accompanying us in evolutionary scales that also have the adaptive value of consciousness. So consciousness is tremendously important. Change is important. But consciousness and change are dependent upon matter, energy, and time. So that's basically the thesis of this new book. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I remember I read... Did you have a book on time previously before this one? Don't you have another I book on metaphysics? I talked a lot about time, but it was not a book on time. Right, and right. Right, yeah. Um, I also found that to be, I found that to be very um, important and fascinating. Um, so you mentioned uh, one of the foundational assumptions that we have in the West that uh, without a God, maybe this was the assumption you mentioned, um, but there were a number of assumptions that we have in the West that uh, end up not necessarily being true. And they're all sort of based on this one worldview, this monotheistic worldview that we inherited, mm -hmm. right? Necessarily being the only kind of, of meaningful thing. So what are like some of the main um, events that happened or assumptions that we make about what can be meaningful or what can be true, right? Like, uh, or what can be perceived? Because I, I seem to remember that you talk about uh, truth and gods and whether there's like a, an objective reality. You know, what, what are the sort of assumptions that we make in the West that aren't true? Well, one of the assumptions we make that is long lived is the dualistic picture of matter and mind. Yes. And the idea that mind is some kind of free floating, purely spiritual entity that survives the death of the body. And one of the implications of that, of course, is uh, 
that we don't really belong here on this earth in this physical setting, but we belong to some other world, which is a marvelous, wonderful world, free of all imperfection. Mm -hmm. And I take issue with the notion that a world free of challenge, of need, of uh, problems, a world in which we're not really needed because everything is already perfect, is a world to which we would want to go anyway. Mm -hmm. And then if we think of the mind as something independent of the body, I remember in my high school or my college philosophy class, my professor said, what happens if I take a baseball bat and hit you on the head with it? Well, I cease to be conscious. That seems to suggest that the mind has something to do with the body and with the processes of the body. So I kept thinking about that and realized that the mind-body dualism simply doesn't work. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is that it gives us no way of understanding how this purely spiritual mind could relate to the purely physical body because they're radically disconnected with one another. Now, if we take that idea and apply it to the idea of God, the traditional idea of God, God is in a timeless eternity. God is pure spirit. God has no need of the world or anything in the world. There is no point of contact or intersection between that kind of God and the world. And there's no way in which that God can be omniscient because that God cannot really know what it's like to be a human being mm -hmm. with all of the finite, limited perspectives and problems of being a human being. So one of the ways to criticize the idea of God is to criticize the notion of the detached, dualistic, completely sufficient God. And if you begin that process of thinking, you realize that the concept of God is really relentlessly, if not inescapably, anthropomorphic. That is a projection onto the heavens of an image of being very similar to ourselves. And we like to think, well, we just think of God sitting on a throne somewhere as an image. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's not literal. But then what do you put in its place? One of the things to put in this place is that there is such a thing as the sacred, the holy. Maybe it's radically imminent within all of the world, within all of nature. And nature for me is sacred ground. That's the title of one of the books that I wrote. And we don't really get around to needing a God to have an ample religious meaning within nature itself and ourselves as creatures of nature, participants in the community of nature with conscious awareness of that participation. So that's as wonderful, as mysterious, as elusive, as subliminal as anything that we need to imagine and call it God. They're all metaphors anyway, as Dewey points out. The whole concept of nature itself is an imagined construct. You can't really think the whole of nature especially if nature transcends the present universe. Mm. But it's a metaphor that's helping us to orient ourselves in the world. So the mind-body dualism is one of the central assumptions, I think. Mm. 
And then the fact value is an assumption. I think the world is full of value and we discover values just like we discover facts, but both are relational things. There, there is potentiality to be actualized by our awareness, our consciousness. It doesn't mean we create them, but we respond to them. And in that responding, become aware of them. So the distinction between fact and value makes some kind of small logical sense, but it doesn't make an existential sense. Right. Now, sorry, this... Um... So we tend, what you're saying is we tend to assume that facts, so saying something is a certain way, is different, is completely separate from saying how good or bad it is, right? And that, that's something that we just assume in Western thought, but you're saying that actually those two things are intimately connected and value is something that actually exists. Well, one way to think about it is that if we didn't value the discovery of facts, there wouldn't be any discovery of facts. Mm. So we value truth. And in order to be a scientist, you have to value truth. So truth is one of the preeminent values of human consciousness. Mm. And uh, the, the values that I discover in the world are not just values for us. They're values for the bear who discovers the value of the of the. Uh, uh, seeds on the bush, you know, because they satisfy that bear's hunger. Uh, the value that the large fish finds in the small fish to be devoured and so on. So values are replete in nature, and there'd be no existence from moment to moment if we not value our own existence. The mm-hmm. only alternative to not valuing, to valuing your own existence is suicide. And not many people commit a suicide, so implicit in that fact is a valuing of one's existence. Mm. So you take away values and you, you take away the whole of the human experience of the world and the animal experience too, I would argue. So that's another assumption we could question. Um, okay, well, are there more? <laughs> there are more, right? Um. Uh, yeah, so resulting from these kinds of distinctions, you have described that there are several different kinds of nihilism, right? There are mm-hmm. um, se- several different ways, and some are becoming increasingly prominent today, right? Because political is thrown in there, right? There's uh, political, um, epistemological, which is the way that you can know things. And you distinguish between cosmic and existential. And I don't remember what the fifth one is. Political. Political. Yeah. No, I, I said political. Cosmic. cosmic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, can you just, where to start? Can you maybe describe what epistemological nihilism is, right? Sort of despair over. Nihilism is despair of the possibility of reliable knowledge. Hmm. We can't really know anything. And uh, one of the roots of epistemological nihilism is set up by Descartes mm. and the meditations on the first philosophy. And that is, we don't really know something if we can't be absolutely certain about it. And uh, that has run through the history of philosophy, certainly from his time to the present. 
and people like John Dewey take issue with it in a book called The Quest for Certainty. Mm. And uh, the only things we can really be certain about are formal systems in logic and mathematics. Other ways of knowing are probabilistic at best. So if we insist that we have to have certainty, we're already endorsing nihilism because 99% of the things we would like to know, we can't know with absolute certainty. And the certainty of one time is the questioning and doubting of a later time. The example I often use with my students is how many atoms were there for the Greeks? There were four. How many are there today, if we're talking about elementary particles? Somewhere around 120. So they were absolutely certain about this, and it goes through all of the philosophers of that period as an axiomatic truth. Mm-hmm. Today we look back, back and we laugh at that, because their certainty is seen by us as not only wrong-headed, but uh, misconceived. So the question then is, uh, and I used to raise this question with my students in class, are there any absolutes? And most of them would raise their hand and say, yes, they're absolute. And I'd say, well, what are some of them? The one most often cited was God. And I would ask, can you be absolutely certain about the existence of God? And they'd have to admit that they couldn't be quite absolutely certain. So there is a difference between the certainty about the concept of God and the absoluteness of God that is being claimed. And as long as you have that gap between what is claimed to be absolute and my ability to know it is absolute, then there aren't any absolutes mm. as far as finite human beings are concerned. Right. And and so we ought not to worry about your we ought not to worry about certain knowledge because that's something that's never possible, right? And so we should adopt a view where we're more uh, relying on what we currently know, but not needing it to be certain and open to it changing, sort of. And we've lived through two scientific revolutions. We know even in the science, the certainties of one age are not necessarily the certainties of another age. And we know also how historically conditioned these certainties are, how sociological they are. So epistemology and sociology come together too. Now, I wouldn't argue that all of our knowledge is hopelessly relativized by its historicization, but I would argue that we need to take seriously the fact that we can't know what the future will bring in the way of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So that's why time is so important too, you see, because it it relativizes in in a positive way our claims to knowledge in the present. And it makes us a little more humble and a little more aware of the assumptions underlying our claims to knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I like the humility. Um, And that is all of these sorts of nihilism are intertwined. Um, Political is, is, is perhaps in some sense obvious but what about like cosmic and existential nihilism what what are what are these and they're also quite prominent and perhaps increasingly Mm -hmm. prominent these days 
Well, the cosmic nihilism is the idea that we cannot really know anything about the cosmos. And this is the opposite allusion to the quest for certainty. Mm-hmm. And that is the claim of total uncertainty, total lack of knowledge of anything. And the universe then is not knowable in its nature. And our attempts to try to know it are futile. Well, the truth, as so often is the case, lies in between these extremes. If you take another example of extremism in knowledge and epistemology, absolutism and total relativism, while the in-between position is pluralism, it's what I call convictional openness. Mm. I have convictions and they're duper deeply rooted, but I'm also open to possible questioning of those assumptions and those deeply rooted beliefs. So I'm not a total skeptic, not a total, total relativist, but I'm certainly not an absolutist, you see. I had a conversation, this will interest you, because it's from an opposite university, Cambridge. I was at the World Congress of Philosophy, and I ran across a philosopher on the street of Boston University, or Boston. And I said, uh, well, you, you teach at Cambridge? And he said, yes. And I said, what sort of philosophy do you advocate? And he said, relativism. And I said, total relativism? He said, yes. So we continued to talk, and we talked for about an hour. And at the end of that, I said, how can we have this conversation in a meaningful way if you're a total relativist? And you know what his answer was? Mm. We haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I see. (laughs) See, total relativism eats itself by the tail. There's no way to make a coherent case for it, because any time you make a coherent case, you assume criteria of coherence. Mm Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so then what? What is uh, so then? What is the if is there a relationship to that? Or then what is existential nihilism? That's just sort of saying everything in my life is meaningless. Yes, it's basically. Oh, good. <laughs> the despair of meaning, hopeless despair. Very few people have that total hopelessness that we call nihilism. So very few people are practicing nihilism. Mm-hmm. There are quite a few people who claim nihilism, but to practice it is something else. And you know, Camus says the only way to practice it really is to commit suicide. And no one does that. So we affirm some kind of what Tillich calls the courage to be, even in the living of our lives from day to day. Yeah. But you can be a nihilist, um, existential nihilist, when you despair of the meaning of life. Mm. And you have to do so uh, to a total extent to be a full-fledged nihilist. Not many people do that. But there is a lot of claims to philosophical nihilism. Sartre is an, is an outstanding proponent of philosophical nihilism. Well, he continued to live his life and write his books and make claims about truth and falsity and so on. So I claim that he did not practice livingly the nihilism that he announced in his books. What his character wrote, Contan, in Nausea, is a wonderful 
expression of the nihilistic view of life. And one of the best expressions of it I found in that book, Nausea, is the priest is walking with his beverage along a beautiful lake, reading his beverage, looking out the lake. He sees the surface of the lake, the beauty of the water, the reflection of the sky, the birds singing, and so on. And they coincide with his very optimistic reverie. Broken Tan looks at the lake, and he thinks about all of the creatures beneath the lake with their claws and their fins, and they're devouring each other. It's a terrible, terrible situation. And he thinks that the nihilist, like himself, can peer beneath the surface, the placid surface of optimism and hope to the depths of despair indeed. So that's, that's nihilism. There's a lot to be um, concerned about in life that is not hunky-dory or peaches and cream, but that's not the whole of life. So one of the things that I talk about at length, and I hope I'm not talking too much about this. Not at all. Well, the ambiguity of the world as we yeah. experience the world and the ambiguity of human beings in the world. And we not only cannot get rid of that ambiguity, if we think about it deeply, we would not wish to because we could no longer be human beings living in the kind of nature that we're accustomed to. And there wouldn't be anything for us to do in a perfect life, a perfect heaven. It would be an immensely boring, an eternity of not being needed, of not having any purpose because everything is already perfect, is a heavenly hell. So ambiguity has to be affirmed and the universe does not have to be denied. Human life does not have to be denied because of this ambiguity. And another term for ambiguity is finitude or fallibility. That's us. Let's affirm us and live as fully as we can in the face of this ambiguity. Yeah, I remember when I, you have a book actually called Living with Ambiguity, and I, I found that to be very important. And it was revelatory to me at the time to learn that, um, to learn this, this idea that you're talking about right now, that a hypothetically perfect world is actually impossible because when and extremely undesirable right because you would be bored perhaps but the thing is you there would be no differentiation right because if for something to be good it has to be in contrast with something that is judged less good right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but it's not only that it's that if it's already perfect there's no place for us there's no responsibility there's no challenge Mm. There are no problems to be encountered and solved. So right. we might as well not exist. Right. Okay. So then let's definitely, let's turn to your, I see hints of your uh, religion. I see hints of your religion of nature in, in your mm-hmm. last answer. So let's pivot to that. Um, so, okay. So in 2000, 2002, is that when Religion of Nature mm-hmm. came out? Yes. Um, so that was the, the first time that you published a, a book, and it is articulating a religious vision that is also 
naturalistic or scientific or however you know people want to think about it it is fully embedded in the natural world and in your language it takes nature as ultimate uh mm -hmm. and i i have a very long list i wrote my master's thesis on this concept mm -hmm. and it started out being like just the longest possible plan for any any master's thesis could ever possibly be because uh, there were I had chapters on all these different concepts and you hit all these different concepts and I would like to talk about most of them today. We'll see. Um, so this personally, I'm interested, were you working on these ideas like for a long time before the book came out in 2002? Like how did that all sort of come together? How did this vision really develop? Well, it came uh, to develop in the 1960s when the wow. Death of God movement took place. In fact, Time magazine had a cover, The Death of God. And this challenged me to think about my belief in God. And the more I thought about it, the less sense it made to me. So the Death of God was part of the uh, transition into a different religious vision. Mm -hmm. And then when I wrote the nihilism book, I said, among other things, we might find it appropriate to have as much reverence for nature as we formerly had for God. Well, that was a kind of uh, guess in the direction of a full-fledged religion of nature. So the nihilism book was published in 1988, and the uh, religion of nature book was published in 2002. So there were about 14 years there where I was thinking about the possibility of religion of nature. Wow. And one of the things I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, I'd like to indicate, and this is from Living with Ambiguity, why nature is an appropriate focus of religion. Yes. And I do that. I have six points that I'll make very quickly. One is, if nature is metaphysically ultimate, as I argue, then this is reason to recognize it as religiously ultimate. And what I'm saying there is any adequate religious ultimate has to be metaphysically ultimate. So I'm affirming the metaphysical ultimacy. Everything that is, is natural. There's nothing extra natural. And so can, can you... Can you contrast that with what it would be like in, in a religion or a Christian worldview? Well, in a Christian vision, nature is radically subordinate to God who created it and rules over it and every aspect. Human beings are created in the image of God, which suggests that they have a purely spiritual, free-floating existence similar to that of God. Mm -hmm. They don't need nature any more than God does. Their true home is elsewhere in heaven with God. So there is, among other things, a radical uh, um, bracketing, minimizing of ecological responsibility implicit in that vision of human beings. Right, but pr primarily um, in contrast to nature as ultimate, God is the ultimate reality and God is God sort of right ultimate, separate. That's what you're saying. Theist, for the monotheist. Yeah. Okay. And there are a lot of religious ultimates. There's Tao, there's the Buddha nature, there is Brahman and Brahma, 
and Copleston was saying, well, there has to be an explanation for the universe, its existence, not only its beginning, but its continuing existence, because the universe is contingent. And that means dependent upon something other than itself. Mm-hmm. And Russell said, everything within the universe is contingent, but the universe itself is not contingent. So if you're looking for a necessary being, nature is a necessary being, and we don't need to posit God. So much for one of Thomas Aquinas' famous arguments. And then finally, as I indicated before, nature is no less awesome, mysterious, and wonderful than any other candidate for religious faith. Why? It makes (laughs) eyes to see and ears to hear attention to PHP, and even the most remote little flower in the the veil that has never been visited by a human being is a manifestation of the glory, the majesty, the wonder of nature. That is really lovely. Um, Okay, so where to to start to dig into this uh, religious vision? What would you say is at the core of what makes this religion of nature uh, meaningful to you or anybody? Well, it's hard to say in a sentence or two, but just with, um, you know, the little story of the flower and the cranny wall, to see it, to understand it, is to understand all mm. eminent within each and every existent thing is the wonder of nature that surrounds it and makes it possible. And uh, if our focus is on God and the life to come after this life, nature is subordinated and we tend not to pay over much attention to it. But once you think of nature as the sole reality, the ultimate reality, then you begin to think about the various aspects of nature and suddenly your eyes are open and you see how marvelous each and everything is. You also see that you don't have to have supernatural miracles to have a meaningful religion because the miracles are all around us. Right. These wonderful things that occur every moment of every day And I think it was Rabindranath Tagore who said, don't say when you wake up, it is morning. Give it a new name. I think a lot of people would resist, resist in a sense sacrificing, say, a personal relationship with a god or the promise or the hope of some sort of life in heaven after death. And so... Uh, what is your what is your response? Because you don't actually you don't see it as a sacrifice. You see this religious vision as being just as emotionally satisfying as an alternative, and rewarding and meaningful. Well, the first thing I would do is to encourage people to think about this idea of heaven mm. that we want to go to and live eternally in and to see if it really is all that desirable. And I would claim that it is totally undesirable because we don't have any freedom. We can't do anything bad. Nothing can hurt us. There, 
nothing needs us in heaven. Everything is already perfect. We're superfluous in heaven, and it's infinitely boring. Mm. So if you start thinking along those lines, you rethink whether you want really want to be in a place like that. This heaven is very much like Huxley's Brave New World. Mm. And who would want to live in the Brave New World? Interesting. So that's part of it. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about needing a God because you need not only eros that arises up, but agape that comes down from God, God's love for us, God's uh, unconditional acceptance of us and so on. Um, I deeply respect people who believe in God and find that kind of uh, consolation and support in God. But wishing that there was a God is not the same thing as being justified in believing that there is a God. So as a philosopher, I have to ask the question, are we justified? What evidence do we have? And I don't find any of the putative evidence that convincing. Now, one response to that fact would be nihilistic despair. There is no God, life is hopeless and so on. But the other response is to find solace, support, even salvation in the nature that surrounds us and suffuses us. I think a lot of people would... Another advantage of the uh, naturalistic approach, sorry to interrupt, is uh, there's no conflict with science. We can affirm the scientific vision of nature, evolution and all, you know, easily in a religion of nature. Hey, everybody. Steph here. Very quick interlude. You may have noticed the interview is not currently happening. So I have decided, Don and I actually ended up chatting for a really long time. And so I have decided to split the interview with him into two different podcast episodes, especially since we cover so much ground. So I am going to go ahead and let this episode end here. And if you want to hear more from Don, and especially about this religious vision, which gets really beautiful and exciting and poetic in our conversation about it and what we as individuals and what our society needs, right? So if you, if you want some more of that, and I do highly recommend it, I just finished the conversation. So I do highly recommend it. Uh, just tune in next week to episode number 23, and you'll be able to hear all, hear all about it. And I'm very much looking forward to getting your feedback. So thank you so much for listening today. Show notes will be up on my website. I will link to all of Don's books. And if you do have any questions about how to further explore his works or any questions about his philosophies, do email me at tmoeverything at gmail.com. I know his work backward and forward and would be more than happy to point you in the right direction. So thank you again so much for tuning in and I will see you uh, later in the week. Take care.